podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two-Footed Podcast. It is Wednesday, the 20th of January. This month is absolutely flying by. Uh, We are brought to you by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A VPN is a virtual privacy network, which allows you to go online and change your location. That can enable you to access American Netflix if you want to check out some shows that are on there that aren't available on the UK or Irish editions. It can also be be very handy in this Brexit world that we're in now. So if you live in the UK, but perhaps spend some time in Europe, you can no longer access Sky Go in mainland Europe because you're not from the EU anymore. And Brexit says no. But with a Liberty Shield VPN, even if you're in France or Spain or wherever you want to be, you can set your location back to the UK and access your Sky Go. So it can be very, very handy wherever you are. LibertyShield.com. They have both hardware and software packages. Do check them out. Use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off at the checkout. And we're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft. Home of Hopcroft is a giftware and homeware company based in Scotland, shipping worldwide. Check out their services and their products at homeofhopcroft.co.uk. Right, folks, Leicester City are top of the league, for today anyway. We'll get to them. We've got a bit to say. Uh, First of all, though, West Ham beat West Brom 2-1 last night, as expected. Um, I think West Ham were comfortably the better team. You would have hoped that West Brom, going into this game, knowing they need results, especially coming off a big win at the weekend, would have been a little bit more ambitious. But West Ham dominated the game. Majority of the ball, 14 shots, 6 on target. West Brom only had 6 six shots, 2 on target. Um, Jared Bowen put the Hammers 1-0 up. Really nice move. Uh, ben Rama picks the ball up left side. Crossfield ball to Kufal. Who, it's a half-volleyed cross back into the area. And Jared Bowen chests it past Sam Johnston. Now, I would question Sam Johnston's positioning on it, but it's really good reactive finish from Bowen, who continues to look a very good player. Doesn't look out of place in the Premier League at all. We're a year on from his signing from uh, Hull. And I, I think Crystal Palace fans really must be furious that they managed to let that one slip through their grasp. They had that deal all wrapped up and somehow, somehow let it slip away. And he ends up at their London rivals, West Ham. And he's been very, very good from. And, of course, in that window, they also signed Thomas Suchek, who continues to look like one of the better midfielders in the league. Again, last night, as a driving force from midfield, taking people out of the game with quick, incisive passing. Declan Rice last night again. More freedom to get forward as well. It showed the, the dominance that... West Ham had in the game that both Suchek and Rice spent substantial amounts of time 
in the West Brom final third. Um, Lanzini came into the team last night for Pablo Fernals. Looked a little bit rusty. Had one really good chance that he should have taken. But he shows the quality of depth they have. They also brought on Yarmolenko, another quality attacking player. I think this West Ham team are, are evolving into quite a lot of fun to watch, if I'm being honest. There are a couple of players short. You'd like to get younger in goal. Fabianski's a good shot stopper. His all-round game's not great. All of West Ham's goalkeepers are 34 and above. For me, I wouldn't be keen on either of the centre-backs. They're working well as a pair right now, but I'd want... Issa Diop is the best centre-back at the club. If you can get him back at his best, he's a 50, 60 million pound centre-back. That's just what he is. So you could get a proper partner for him. Unfortunately, the one who would have been probably ideal is currently playing really well for Man City and is no longer available. But if they could get another centre-back in and find a younger left-back, because while Aaron Cresswell's having a good season and was good as a left-side centre-back, now playing well again at left-back, he is pushing on, he is past his best. And if you can get a little bit younger there, that, that would be beneficial. The midfield two are great. They could do with some depth in there. They don't really have anybody behind them other than the corpse of uh, Mark Noble, who can no longer really run. And then when you consider the attacking options, Bowen, Benrama, Fornals, Lanzini, Yarmolenko, they still own Felipe Anderson, whose loan spell at Porto is not going all that well, so they can always bring him back and just have more and more talent. Uh, they do need to get somebody in as a backup to Antonio or competition for Antonio because it's not feasible to only have one striker. Um, they've tried a few people. Obviously, Halar didn't fully work because they weren't using him correctly. He's not someone that plays as a lone striker. Um, they had a Jetty who went on to go to Celtic. So they've tried, and rumors are they're looking at a couple of different options now. But they need to get somebody in because Antonio as well, the injury problems the guys had, it, it does hurt them when he's not there. He, they're a completely different team when he's not there. Now, finding a proxy for him is going to be very difficult because there's not many players in the world like him. He may be one of one. Um, that size, that speed, that aggression, the fact that he's so versatile as well. I mean, this is a guy who's played as a fullback in his career. He's played winger. He's played in midfield. He can literally play anywhere and do a good job for you. But as I said, West Ham, look, they, I was completely wrong about them at the start of the season. They've been far better than expected. It's another good win for them last night. Keeps them moving in the right direction. Um, they currently sit seventh in the league. They've now gone above Chelsea, so they'll be absolutely thrilled with that. Three wins on the bounce, unbeaten in five. Coming up for them, they've got Doncaster obviously at the weekend in the cup. Then it's Palace away, Liverpool at home, Villa away, Fulham away, Sheffield United at home, Spurs at home, and then City away. So there's four tough games in there, and Palace away won't be easy. But they'll look at the Fulham and Sheffield United games as games they can definitely go to win. They could take a point at Palace. That'd be seven points from the next five league games. That wouldn't be a bad return. And that, that's assuming they lose to Liverpool and Villa, which are nowhere near certainties, especially the form Liverpool are in. There's no reason West Ham can't beat them as, as things stand. Um, 
like I said, Spurs, the last time they played Spurs, they were 3-0 down and came back to uh, to get a point. So, again, they can be confident. City away will be very tough with City in the form that they're in. But all things considered, West Ham can be very, very pleased with how their season is going. Uh, the exact opposite of, is true, of course, of uh, West Bromwich Albion, who... A different shape last night, a 4-4-1-1, Pereira in behind Robinson, not really getting the best out of him. He was a little bit isolated, but he did pick the ball up. He looked like a difference maker. He looked like someone that could really make things happen. And, of course, he gets a great goal to draw it initially back to 1-1 um, before Mikel Antonio scores the winner to, to give West Ham the three points. That defense is obviously an issue. Midfield, the, the midfield pairing, Sayers is a good championship player. I don't, don't think he's a Premier League player. Livermore has been a good Premier League player, but he is past his best. Conor Gallagher was wasted on the wing. There was obviously a little bit of controversy. Well, I say controversy. It's it's nonsense, really. In that West Brom left Robert Snodgrass out of the squad. And the Premier League are now investigating whether this was part of the agreement to uh, to buy him. Uh, who cares? Like, Robert Snodgrass is not moving the needle for anybody. If anything, him not playing strengthens them because Conor Gallagher, even out on the right, is a better player than them at this point. Um, you'd wonder why Big Sam only made two substitutions last night. Like, Kravinovic is a very good player and he sat on the bench scratching himself. Brings on Hal robson Canu, Brings on a fullback in Darnell Furlong. Strange moves from Sam last night. Very, very strange moves from, from Sam last night. It's not going well. Um, they sit 19th. They are six points ahead of Sheffield United, but they're five points behind Burnley, who sit 17th, and Burnley have two games in hand. West Brom have City next, so that's going to be a whole bunch of fun for them. Then they have a massive game against Fulham. Then another massive game against Sheffield United. Spurs away, United at home, a massive game away to Burnley, and a massive game at home to Brighton. So they have three of the top five, six teams in the league, and then four games that are all going to be absolute dogfights. That's not a nice run. There's obviously the four relegation battles. They can win each one of those. Like There's no reason they can't beat Fulham at home. There's no reason they couldn't go to Bramall Lane and beat Sheffield United. Burnley away will be difficult, but again, they're both knocking around the bottom of the league for a reason this season. And again, Brighton at home, there's no reason they can't win that game. So if they were to win all four of those, which seems unlikely given you know how the season's gone for them so far, and the fact they've only won two games out of 19, to ask them to win four of seven would be... You know, it would be a huge accomplishment. But if they could win those games, like they will catapult themselves out of the bottom three. They'll drag Burnley back, drag Brighton back. Newcastle don't need dragging. They're charging for the bottom three by themselves. It's a huge opportunity for them over the next few games. But if they don't win those games, like if they win one and draw one and lose two, I, mean, I, think, it, I think they're done at that point. I think the next seven games define their season. And then... At that point, they've played 26. If they're looking dead and buried at that point, it's going to be a long, long road to the end of the season. They, they didn't do enough in the summer. They're not doing anything at the moment. Sam is blaming Brexit. He shouldn't have voted for it, Sam. 
But, I mean, who knows? Are the owners not willing to back him at the minute? I mean, the players they've been linked with, it's Robert Snodgrass or it's Andy Carroll or Carroll or it's people in on loan. Maybe the owners aren't willing to back Sam, which is strange because I don't know why you'd bring Sam in if you weren't going to back him. That's his mandate. You bring him in, you give him some money to spend, he spends it, he keeps you up. If they don't spend it and they go down, I think he can walk away with his, you know, with his hands clean because it will be down to the owners. They didn't back Billich enough in the summer. They obviously helped, like, allowed him to buy Pereira, who'd been there. Big money on Dean Gana, fair. And Carlin Grant, they needed a striker, but it took them months to get that deal done. That deal should have been done in August. They didn't address the defence. Cedric Kipre came in from um, Wigan. He's already rumoured to be on his way out. Ivanovic was brought in. He was finished three years ago. It's disappointing for West Brom, disappointing for Baggy's fans. You know, if they go down, if they can keep that front three, they'll be in a great position to try and come back up because there's nobody else in the squad that anyone's gonna, going to want. That front three is sort of it. If they can keep them, they could have a chance to bounce back up. And, you know, they've been a yo-yo club in the past. But I'm sure their fans would like to just, you know, not have to go through a topsy-turvy season, not have to go through, you know, a promotion chase or a relegation battle in consecutive seasons. be nice to just, you know, just finish 14th. That'd be lovely. Nice, boring season. Just be lovely. Just cruise your way through. Just be, be Crystal Palace or Wolves. Um, second game of the evening then. Leicester City. 2-0 win over Chelsea. They go top of the league. And um, the win was absolutely what they deserved. They got an early goal. A quick corner. Albrighton to Madison. Back to Albrighton. It got a little bit fortunate then when Albrighton's cut back, which was intended for Harvey Barnes. Barnes swung and missed. But it kind of clipped his heel and it bounced up just nice. For Wilf Ndidi striding onto the ball. Um, he sort of struck across the ball and it looked like he sliced it. But the slice helped him and it swerved away from the keeper. Clipped the post and ended up in the net. And from there, I mean, that was game over. Because Chelsea were far too tactically naive in this game. Leicester were happy to sit back and just invite them on. And then counter the life out of them. Uh, with, with Vardy and Barnes and the passing of Madison and uh, Thielemans, plus that outlet that Mark Albrighton was giving them down the right. And they eventually get their second goal. Uh, James Madison, brilliant run into the penalty area, arrives nobody near him, nobody within five yards of him in the penalty area, ball over the top, and it's a great finish. Unless they were comfortable from there. Chelsea had a couple of chances, they had a, Penalty given and then revoked. Um, it was the foul by Johnny Evans was outside the box. So it was the correct decision. Uh, Chelsea did a goal disallowed when Timo Werner was offside. But in truth, Chelsea didn't deserve anything from this game. Leicester deserved the three points. Leicester deserved to be top of the league for the night. That is a sensationally good team that they've put together there. Kasper Schmeichel, yes, he's... 34, he's, he's not quite the goalkeeper he was, to say, the year they won the league. But he's still a solid goalkeeper. One of the things they're going to have to do 
this summer is find the successor to Casper Schmeichel. Now, they may dip back into France. Um, Alban Lafont is there at Nantes. Very talented goalkeeper, potentially available. But there are others that they could go for. The defensive line, Castanier was good last night. Fafana was out of this world. The guy is sensational. How he's only 20 years of age, I have no idea. Johnny Evans is the old head there. And James Justin, who, bar Andy Robertson, I don't think there's been a better fullback in the league this season. Right back, left back, right side of a back three. It doesn't matter to him. Now, he needs to work on his headed finishes because he missed a sitter last night. But his play all season has been phenomenal. And if you're picking a team of the first half of the season, he is, without question, the right back. No doubt for me, he's in the team. Um, big news for them in that Ricardo Pereira came on last night. and He came on at right wing, and it did get me thinking, is that where you put him? Because you've got Castanier at right back, who you paid a lot of money for. Justin is undroppable at this point. So even if he has to play left back, he's undroppable. So the answer with Castanier is either right back or bench. And if he's right back, that means Pereira has to go right wing. But I think Pereira could be very good on the right wing because he's very, very good going forward. Whether you'd lose a little bit of his over, overlapping play, I don't know. But it could be an option for them. if they Because Castanier could probably play right wing as well a little bit. He's played as a wing back a lot in his career. He's very comfortable going forward. So if you had both of them there, they could be switching. Constantly. Now, the problem on the left side is just that Justin and Barnes are both left foot, are both right footed, so you don't get any natural width. But they, the way they play together, how they're combining, they, they've been tremendous. And, you know, I think for Leicester having those two young players there, it's a, a massive look towards what their future could be. Ndidi is one of the best holding midfielders in the league. Tielemans is one of the best central midfielders in the league, and Madison's one of the best attacking midfielders in the league. And that 3-0 is arguably the best and most complete midfield in the league. When they're fit and firing, they are brilliant. I love watching those three play together. I think they just combine so well. They, they complement each other in attack and defense. They own Dennis Pryat, Nampali's Mendy, uh, Hamza Chowdhury, so they've got good depth, really good depth there as well. The right wing spot is the one weak point in the starting eleven. Albrighton, as reliable as he is, he's a reliable six out of ten most weeks. He's not like a seven or eight out of ten. Whereas all the rest of them, you kind of look at and think, that's a really good player. They're really good players everywhere. If Pereira's the answer there, great. If he's not and he goes back to right back, then Castanier just becomes your third fullback. And then you've got young Luke Thomas. So your fullbacks are sorted. They've got Cagliostianchu to come back in at centre-back as well. So if it's him and Fafana with Evans and Benkovic, say, as your four, that's great. I mentioned the midfield. So you need to buy a right winger and upgrade on, on all Brighton. If they wait till the summer, I mean, maybe they go for someone like David Brooks from Bournemouth, because Bournemouth to me don't look like a team that are coming up. And Brooks would fit really well. His creativity and dribbling would fit really well into that team. If you went Brooks, Thielemans, Madison and Barnes across your midfield, 
with Ndidi sat behind them. Again, I, I don't know that there's a better group in the league. Um, you'll still have Old Brighton. You'll still have Eosie Perez can play there. It looks like Damari Gray is off. But you know, they still have good options in those midfield, um, the backup midfield roles. And then up front, they've got Vardy. And obviously, Vardy is Vardy. He's a tremendously reliable goal scorer. But again, he's 34 like Schmeichel. So what you need to find is a, a quality backup, because when he's not there, the difference is staggering. But a quality backup who can begin to replace him over the next two years. So Leicester don't have a lot to do. To remain at this level, the big thing is keep who you have. Now, there's obviously the chance that they might lose a player. It could be Pereira. He might be the one they decide to let go because they have Castanier. I would want to keep him because I think he's he's a fantastic fullback. But if they could add that left-sided attacking midfielder, which I think is what they hoped Cengiz under would be, but he hasn't really worked out for them so far. He's had some good games, but he just hasn't had the consistency. Whether the effort's not there or not, I don't know. Rodgers is quite demanding on his players. But if they could get someone to fill that role, and then those long-term successors for Schmeichel and Vardy, I mean, that is, that's a title-winning squad if they add those three pieces. I think this season they'll fall slightly short. They could well push everybody for that fourth spot. They could even finish third. I still think they look a little bit... They're a little bit light just squad-wise in, in wide areas and when Vardy's not there. Well, Vardy's not there is the big one. So I still think they probably finish fifth or sixth. But there's... Look, there's no reason they can't finish top four. They have all the talent. If everybody stays fit... And hopefully they've learned from last season because it was about this point last season that the wheels fell off. They were second at this point last season behind Liverpool, seen as the main challengers to Liverpool. And then the wheels fell off and they ended up missing out on on a top four spot. They haven't really been linked to anybody for this month that I've heard of anyway. Um, We'll get into the gossip a bit later, but... They don't need much. One starter and two high-quality future starters. It's expensive, but they've got plenty of money. That's not a club that's struggling in any way. The depth is there in certain areas. The quality is everywhere. Like, everywhere. Fafana and Sayonchu together is going to be a sensational pairing. I think Sayonchu's a top three centre-back in the league when he's fit. Fafana looks like... Give him two years, he might be a top three centre-back in the world. The guy, guy's been incredible. Um, yeah, I, I really like what they've done. Um, on to Chelsea. I, I found myself feeling sorry for Frank Lampard last night, I have to say. This is not the team or the squad that he wanted. It's not the team or the squad he envisioned. Parts of it are, but you know that looking at last season and how they played, one of the things he did was he was building a culture and he was building accountability and he was building a team spirit and they were lads that were playing together and it didn't always work because they had a lot of young players and they had some injuries to key players, but you could see where they were going. 
This season, you can't really see it. Last night, he went 4-2-3-1, a bit of a change in shape. Hudson-Odoi on the right, Havertz is a 10, and Pulisic on the left wing. Uh, Timo Werner left out of the team, came on, obviously, and, and had that goal disallowed. The problem with that is, behind them, you've got Kovacic and Mount, neither of whom are suited to playing with the other. Mount doesn't really have the nous or the experience to play in a two just yet. He will get there. Kovacic is really good in a two with the right partner, but that partner is not Mason Mount. He leaves Zuma out again. Zuma has been by far their best defender all season. Apparently Rudiger's in the team because he showed character or, or personality or something stupid like that. Um, Thiago Silva looked like an old man again last night. Rudiger looked like, you know, the fifth centre-back, which is what he was a few weeks back. There's problems at Chelsea. There really are. And I, I, I think Frank is going to be the victim. Like, for me, I look at Chelsea, and I'm, I'm convinced that their plan for the summer and their team for this season was to be Abraham as the nine, Zayic as the ten. I think that's why they bought him. That's what they wanted him for. Hudson Odoi and Pulisic on the wing. I think that's absolutely what the plan was. So Havertz out, Zayic in. Very different types of players, but they do play in similar areas. Havertz is more of a goal scorer. Zayic is the playmaker, the creator. I think that's what Frank wanted. Behind them, I think he wanted Mason Mount, but he wanted Declan Rice. I think that's the pairing he wanted. Mount and Rice, that front four, and I think Frank would have been Delighted with how the midfield attack was looking. He definitely wanted Ben Chilwell. That's one that was was clear and obvious from you know the minute Frank took over, Chilwell was the target. And obviously Reese James was coming through at right back, so they knew they had him. So that's definitely what they wanted. Zuma was great last season. Without question, the plan was let's go and get a partner for him. Unfortunately for Frank, they spent all the money on Kai Havertz and Timo Werner. The, the Havertz money is what would have gone on Rice. The Werner money is what should have gone on the centre-back. Instead, they end up with the ghost of Thiago Silva. It's not Thiago Silva's fault for one second that they are what they are. But he's not playing well. And he causes problems because of his lack of pace. And he's affecting Chilwell. He's affecting the midfield. And he's hampering his partner. If they'd gone and got a real quality centre-back in their mid-twenties to partner Zuma in the summer, they would have been much better off. They also obviously wanted a new goalkeeper, but again, they spent most of their money on players they didn't initially want or need. So they go with Mendy, who started the season well, but he just looks like a train wreck ever since. Whether, Whether it's whatever afflicted Kepa. Maybe it's something at Chelsea. I mean, I don't know if the same goalkeeping coach is there now as was there under Sarri when Kepa fell off a cliff. But there's something wrong at Chelsea when it comes to goalkeepers because you know they've spent $100 million on two goalkeepers in the last few years and both of them have gone there and just dipped massively. Now, Mendy wasn't the right signing to begin with. Um, you're not winning a title with a goalkeeper like that. He's too erratic. He's too flappy. He makes bad decisions. He's 
palms the ball back in dangerous areas too much, gives up too many chances. But if they'd gone and gotten a better goalkeeper, a quality centre-back and Declan Rice in the summer rather than Havertz and, and Werner, it wouldn't have been as sexy a window. It wouldn't have been hailed as the greatest window of all time. But they'd be a better team. They might not be a top four team, but they don't... Well, maybe they do need to be a top four team under under Abramovich, but they'd be a team that would develop together as Frank developed as a manager. And I saw a tweet last night. Someone said, isn't it mad that, you know, Gerard was a better player than Lampard and he's also a better manager than Lampard. Now, I do think Gerard was a better player than Lampard, but that's neither here nor there. The manager side is interesting because they're both in year three. Obviously, Gerard's having a better season this year than Frank is. But you do have to factor in, he's playing in the SPL, which is trash. And even Celtic are trash this year. So there's no competition up there. It's a very easy league to win this season. Now, to win it in the manner they're winning it in, that's different. That's why it's a better season. If they're just winning it normally, you know, if they were two points clear of Celtic and they were chugging along in the Europa League, I'd argue they're probably about even because I think the Premier League is so much more difficult. The Scottish Premier League is basically League One. The calibre is basically League One. Rangers and Celtic will be good championship teams. The rest are League One, maybe even bordering League Two. Chelsea are doing really well in the Champions League. Now they've got a really horrible draw with Atletico Madrid, but you know Rangers obviously went through in their group in the Europa League. But last season... There's no question Lampard had a better season than Steven. No question. That top four in the Premier League is far more impressive than second by a distance in the SPL. The season before, Lampard had a better season at Derby as opposed to Gerrard at Rangers. In every regard, style of football was better. Performances were better. This season, Gerard is definitely having the better year, but they're three seasons in. Frank has two seasons. Gerard has won. I would say hold off on the judgments of who's the better manager for now. I think Stevie's learning quicker. But he's also having things all his own way. He's got a lot more control than Frank does. He's got a lot more say in who arrives and who leaves than Frank does. Chelsea can say, oh, we we." track Kai Havertz for years we had his agent over we kept in touch everybody did that Liverpool had Kai Havertz at Melwood with his agent but the fact of the matter is that that was all pre-Frank and like every other club bar Real Madrid and Bayern they thought he was gone they cooled their interest because it was clear that he had made his decision that when he left Leverkusen, he was going to Bayern Munich or Real Madrid. And then COVID happened and neither could afford him because Bayern were committed to buying Leroy Sané and didn't want to have another outlay of, you know, over 50 million. It would have been, whatever, 75 million for, for Kai. Real didn't buy anybody at all because they were absolutely walloped by COVID. So Chelsea took advantage of a situation. Player that they had been keen on, that they knew all about, they jumped in and nabbed him, but they didn't plan to buy him in the summer. And anyone who says they, they did is lying. There's just no way they planned to buy him in the summer. It was an opportunistic deal, as was Werner, who was going to Liverpool for all intents and purposes until COVID. 
And unfortunately for Frank, those two signings have derailed. And it's not their fault either because they're just young lads coming across getting a big move. But they have derailed Frank's plans. They have unsettled what Frank was building. And he doesn't know how to use either of them. Like, he blatantly doesn't know how to use either of them. And unfortunately for Frank, it does look like his days are numbered. Chelsea's record against the top 14 this season. Top 14. They've played 13 games. Because they're obviously one of the 14. They've won three. Now, they beat West Ham, who are currently now ahead of them in the league. They beat Leeds. Leeds are currently 12th. And they beat Palace, who are 13th. They've had four draws. Southampton, that three-all draw, when they should have won the game. United and Tottenham, those drab, dour, nil-nil draws. And Aston Villa, who are currently 11th. And then they've lost six. They lost to Liverpool, lost to Everton. Lost to Wolves, lost to Arsenal, lost to City, lost to Leicester last night. They're flat track bullies because talent is getting them wins against bad teams. And I think if you look at the league, there's no question Newcastle are a bad team. Unfortunately, this season, Brighton are a bad team. This season, Burnley are a bad team. Fulham are a bad team. They drew at West Brom, who are terrible. And they beat Sheffield United, who are a bad team. Well, they're actually another atrocious team. But anybody above that, anybody competent, Wolves are a competent team. Palace are a competent team. Now, they beat Palace. That was a good result, but... They should be Palace. They beat Leeds. Villa, a competent team. Arsenal, uh, that was kind of the turnaround for Arsenal. Southampton, West Ham, Everton, Spurs, Liverpool, City, United, Leicester. They haven't, you know, the only one they've beaten there is, is West Ham. Who are the worst of that group? Like, as much as I've said they've really surprised me this season, I was wrong about them, I still don't think they finished top half. I still think they end up 11th or 12th. And if Chelsea go through the whole season without beating a top-half team, that would be staggering. If, they, if at the end of the season they haven't beaten anyone in the top half, that would be abs- that would be an incredible effort. It would be really hard to do that with that squad. So you have to think Frank's days are numbered. His, he didn't come across well in his post-match presser. He threw some players under the bus. Um, criticised them, said that you know the the effort wasn't there and that they weren't pressing enough, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But he came out with the line: "Well, Leicester were a better team than us tonight, but Chelsea weren't a team. They didn't look like a team. They never looked like they'd been coached or prepared. They never had a game plan for this game. There's no defensive shape, no defensive scheme, no attacking patterns of play." No focal point to the attack, even though you've got Tammy Abraham up front. It was a really bad look watching Lampard do that injury, that, that interview last night. He really threw the players under the bus. Now, things don't get easier for Chelsea 
you know, they've got Wolves. Well, they've got Luton next in the cup. Then they get Wolves. Then Burnley. Then Spurs. Now, then it's Sheffield United away. Then Newcastle at home. They're games they have to win. Frank may be gone by then, so things could be different. Southampton away is horrible. Atletico Madrid, horrible. United, horrible. And the following month doesn't get much easier. Now, I wouldn't normally go this far ahead, but Everton, Leeds, Atletico again, and Liverpool. That is a horrible march. Chelsea have a couple of sweetheart games in the next two, in the next 10 weeks, but that's it. That is it. It's really hard to see how Lampard survives. Thomas Tuchel is out there waiting for a phone call. Allegri is out there. Now, Allegri might be put off by, you know, the fact that Conte went there, was treated like dirt, won the league, got sacked. Sarri went there, got treated like dirt, won the Europa League, got sacked. So if Allegri rings either of them for advice, I can't imagine either will have much good to say. So Thomas Tuchel could be the one. Or or maybe they wait till the summer. Maybe they, they could fire Lampard now and go with a caretaker. They brought Avram Grant back to the club. Um, so he could maybe take over till the end of the season. Maybe they just punt on the season. And maybe the man who beat them last night, Brendan Rodgers, is the guy. Now, he obviously spent some time there when he was a younger younger man as a coach. He did burn some bridges with some comments when he was Liverpool manager. But if he's repaired them, I think Brendan would be quite attracted to the Chelsea job. It's a glamour job. He sees himself as one of the best managers in the world. I think he, he'd pr- probably quite like to manage one of the biggest clubs in the country. Um I think he'd be foolish. I think that Leicester squad is 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 one you don't walk away from. But, you know, ambition can be a killer at times. And maybe he just decides to, to jump and, and go there. He walked away from a great situation at Celtic to join Leicester because there was more glamour in the job. Regardless of the fact that Leicester are a far better team than Chelsea, there's a lot more glamour about Chelsea. It's Chelsea, it's London, lots of money to spend. Really good squad to walk into. And you give Brendan that squad, that'll be different. Brendan will do different things with that squad. Now, certain players may not like it, but Brendan will do different things with that squad. Like, if you look at what he's doing at the minute with Leicester, he'll need to find that Ndidi type, but you know, maybe he can stick Kante there for the short term. But an Ndidi is needed. He could try and convert Havertz into that same role he's converted Madison into. That could work. Maybe he uses Mount as his Thielemans. So say Declan Rice comes in as that holding midfielder. Mount as the Thielemans. Havertz as the the Madison. Pulisic out one side as the Barnes. You'd have to play Zayic on the right because you're going to need extra creativity. But I think that's what he wants there anyway is that left footer who'll cut in. And Timo Werner as is Jamie Vardy. I mean, that it's a way to get them all on the pitch. Now, you don't get Tammy Abraham on the pitch, and obviously he might not be too happy about that. 
there's already been talk that he could go in the summer and Aston Villa are rumoured to be very keen and you do have to think that a, a Tammy Abraham, Ollie Watkins pairing could work really nicely. But Brendan could make things happen with that squad and he's obviously a far better coach than Frank. It's tough for me to praise Brendan. It really is tough, but he's doing an incredible job at Leicester this season. He did a great job the first half of last season until it, until it all went downhill. Uh, but the way he's he's rebounded, the way he's turned things around, managed through some some bad injuries, you know, like indeed he missed three months. Pereira and Sionchu have barely played all season. They're, they're two of the best defenders in the league. Brendan has done a, a great job. He He's doing a great job. This is the best season of Brendan's career. Now, I saw somebody tweet that in the last, I think he said the last, 10 seasons, Brendan's had 9 great seasons, that's nonsense that is flat out nonsense, because there's no way you can look at last season and say that's a great season the first half of it was great, the second half was an abomination it's as bad as it was It was a fireable 5 month run of form Um, yeah, he did really well at Celtic for, for his 3 years there but well, two and two and two thirds seasons there. But that last season they had fallen off. And remember, they weren't good in Europe at all under Brandon. In fact, they were embarrassingly bad under Brandon in Europe. Um, he did great domestically and obviously won everything. Three straight trebles, though he you know only gets credit for two because he left midway midway through. But he did did good work at, at Celtic. I don't think they're great seasons, though. There's no competition. Rangers were still rebuilding. You can't claim all his time at Liverpool was great. You just can't. There's just no way. His first season was disappointing. Second season was great. Third season was a disaster. The fourth season, he gets sacked. So there's three bad... Se- well... Two terrible seasons at Liverpool. One not great season at Liverpool. Last season, uh, half a great season, half a dreadful season. It's probably a decent season. It's not a great season. So it's just hyperbolic nonsense. He's a good manager. He's a really good attacking mind. He's been quite lucky at Leicester that he inherited a good defensive side. He has made them better because he's enhanced how they are with, with possession, made them more counter-attack based as well. Leicester are one of the few teams that can can, sw- can flip that switch and either dominate the ball against the lesser teams or sit in and strike on the counter against the better teams. And The thing with Brendan as well is he'll often go and play one of the better teams and switch it up. So they could go and play... Man United and Brendan could decide let's just dominate the ball he's got the players to do it, they co- he coaches them well enough to do it it's a shame he has the personality he has, it's a shame he lacks the character he preaches about because he, he'd be a better manager if he was if, if, he, if he was a better person and that's that that is the two games from last night um Okay, something a little bit different now. I've got an interview with Karen Tejwani, the author of the book 
Wings of Change, uh, which is about the Red Bull organizations. So I've got Quran now, and then we'll be back with some gossip. I'm joined now by Karan Tejwani, the co-founder and editor of The Football Chronicle. You can find his writing on These Football Times and the author of the book Wings of Change, How the World's Biggest Energy Drinks Manufacturer Made a Mark in Football, which covers the entire Red Bull empire. Karan, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're busy at the moment, so I really do appreciate it. No worries, guys. Thank you for having me. So let's jump in with the book. Yeah. Wings of Change. Why this book and why now? Um, so I was always fascinated by what Red Bull do in football. I mean, I knew what they were doing um, before I made this idea of writing the book serious. I, I knew that they had a very um, innovative, modern, in a way, model. And I knew that they were very much despised by lots of supporters around the world. And they still are in many places. So I wanted to explore what exactly they were doing, what made them so successful and what made them so innovative and attractive to watch on the pitch, whilst also looking at why so many people hated them in whatever country they were based in. Um, so it was a combination of those two factors. And I watched a couple of games, you know, back in the winter of 2019. And, you know, that sort of pushed the idea that I should write this book and look into it even further and, you know, put my findings out there. So everybody's aware they own... RB Salzburg, they are Red Bull Salzburg, RB Leipzig, the New York Red Bulls. They've got Red Bull Brazil, Red Bull Ghana, Red Bull Bragantino, which is a new one to me. It's another one in Brazil. Um, I remember going back, it would have been 2006, yep. when Giovanni Trapattoni took the Red Bull Salzburg job. <laughs> and it was a massive shock because you have an icon of the game, one of the greatest managers the game has ever seen, who could have gotten a job in Italy, in England, wherever he wanted, all of a sudden goes to Austria, which is, you know, at the time, something of a footballing outpost, and takes over this job. And it's like, well, Red Bull Salzburg, that doesn't sound like a real football team. And then you start to look into it, and you see some of the history. And as you mentioned, they are largely despised by large portions of of football fandom but that was sort of their first big move in Europe at the same time they buy the Metro Stars in the MLS and turn them into the New York Red Bulls and that move isn't met with the same kind of pushback because obviously they don't have the same history as um, as what they've kind of tried to wipe out with <laughs> FC Salzburg but I think it, would I be right in saying the American market was more open to that because of the franchise nature than the European uh, viewpoint of you know a club and its history. Yeah, you could say so. You could say that the American market was more accepting of what Red Bull were doing. There was some backlash, but not as much as um, there was in Austria and eventually in Germany. And that was because football or soccer in America was still kind of fresh to the to the region. You know, the World Cup was about 12 years ago. MLS was born about 10 years before um, before Red Bull came to America. So it, it was still a new market to exploit. And it was done with a view towards improving the energy drink market there, as well as, you know, using football as a way to do that. So, um, yeah, yeah you're, you're right when you say that because America was so new to football and more accepting of it, there was far less backlash than there would have been. And um, even at the time, Metro Stars weren't that successful. They had a few near misses with, with, with a few trophies and a few cup finals. 
Um, and people felt that Red Bull could take them to the next level and win a few trophies. So people were accepting that in that regard as well. So um, there were lots of, lots of promises made, uh, lots of promises which you live up to, especially with the making of the new stadium, the Red Bull Arena in New York. So fans are, fans are mostly happy and they bought into the project very early on, whereas some people in Austria and Germany are still angry about Red Bull's presence in that country. Yeah, so in Austria, obviously, they take over FC Salzburg, who have you know quite a good history of their own. But what they've been able to do and the dominance that they've shown in Austria and in, you know, in the Bundesliga as well, where obviously they take over a, a kind of a couple of clubs. They buy a license of one, a playing, playing rights license of one. And, you know, they build a stadium and they start off low on down without much of a fan base. And they kind of build the fan base as they go. But as they get more successful and the same thing with, with, with Salzburg, do you think it would be true to say that, some of the fans of the previous clubs who had initially turned their back on the project have come round to it because of the success, because of the high level that the clubs compete at, Champions League, Europa League, winning, you know, winning titles, high positions in the Bundesliga. N- not to call them glory hunters, but is success starting to heal some of the wounds that some people felt were inflicted? I don't think that's necessarily the case, especially in Austria. In Germany, the club that they took over, which was SSV Markenstedt, were a small club which had about 100, 200-odd fans every season. And they weren't really that relevant. They were playing in the fifth division and they didn't have much of history to be proud of. So I don't think many fans turned their backs on on that on the German club anyways. Um, they, Leipzig were just born with a lot of backlash from other clubs and from other fans who felt that Leipzig were an unoriginal, unauthentic club who were sort of breaking the laws of German football by being and doing what they are doing. But in Austria, I haven't heard of many people who've gone back um, towards Red Bull Salzburg because of the Phoenix club that was born from it, which was which was called Austria Salzburg, which was the former name. And they retained the former colours of the club, which was purple and white. Um, so the Phoenix club took away a lot of the fans that turned their backs on them. Um, but, but Salzburg did win a lot of people over with how they've gone about their business. Um, they've been very successful right from the start, from 2005 onwards. They've won, I think, just about every league title. They've won about 13 out of 15, I believe. And they've won almost every domestic cup in, in that they possibly could. So they won a lot of people over and they try to appease to the local public. And seeing as Red Bull themselves are a Salzburg company, that they are their headquarters and, and, and their owners from Salzburg, um, people felt that it, it was a very local thing to do. Um, you know, there, there's still a, a lot of anger about them changing the logo and the colours and the crest and the, the stadium name and all that. But they, they've done very well to win some people over in the local community. So, sticking with Salzburg then, they've had tremendous success. And obviously they've they've gone about things the, the right way in terms of, you know, the stadium that they've built there and how they've developed the brand. Do you think initially it started off as a purely branding opportunity and then developed into so much more as they realized we're actually very, very good at this. We can not just be a a vehicle for our brand. We can actually become a very profitable, very successful football club. Or was it always the intent to be a very profitable, profitable, very successful football club? I think the intent still is focused on improving their brand, which is the energy drink. 
Um, but along the way, they have realized that they are doing very well and football is being a very profitable um, outlet for them. Uh, if you look at the clubs they've taken over and the partnerships they've formed in, you'll notice that the countries that they're formed in are countries where Red Bull is hugely popular. You know, in, back in November, um, they started a partnership with an Indian club. And over the last two years, India has sold the most number of cans of Red Bull um, out of anywhere in the world. So you could still say that there is a view towards marketing their, their, their energy drink, um, whilst football has been a hugely successful outlet for them. Um you know, even right from the start, they were struggling a bit with with the football side of things because they didn't have the right people in charge and they had a lot of resources and a lot of money compared to other clubs. Um, but because they didn't have the right football knowledge, they were struggling a bit. Leipzig struggled in the third division. They struggled to get out of there for a bit, while Salzburg didn't have a long, long-term sustainable model. So until they got the right football minds and they weren't doing very well for themselves. And once they did that in 2012, um, things changed for them drastically. So... Um, it, it took a bit of trial and error to get the football side of things right, but you could say that a view has always been, or, or they've, they've always had a view towards extending their their the popularity of Red Bull itself, and which is the energy drink. So yeah, it, it's been a mixture of both, I would say. We've mentioned that they're obviously they're unpopular with a lot of other clubs and with you know the fan bases of other clubs, but. I think that's in stark contrast to how they're actually viewed by people within other football clubs. I know that Liverpool um, and other Premier League clubs, when building their training grounds, when looking at recruitment profiles and, and things like that, recruitment models, have reached out to the Red Bull group, um, in particular when, when Ralph Ranić was was overseeing things. and and copied quite a bit of what they were doing. So, I mean, they've become innovators in in a number of ways and and really set themselves apart from the crowd by being being innovative, by, you know, by scouting areas of the world that maybe hadn't been as heavily scouted before, by looking at specific analytical profiles of players that others weren't looking at, by taking gambles that other clubs maybe weren't willing to take on a player like Sadio Mane, a player like Naby Keita, and bringing them in and developing them. And then obviously the the great thing for them is they can develop them at multiple levels. So they can develop them in the, the Austrian Bundesliga and if they become too good for that, but are maybe ready to move on to an elite level Premier League, Bundesliga, La Liga club, they can just shift them on to Leipzig. Yeah. where not only will they continue to develop, but they will help Leipzig challenge for silverware and Champions League, etc. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, because they have this very identical model of a, a similar style of play, where they all play the same way, all four clubs around the world, which is New York, Bragantino, uh, Leipzig and Salzburg, um, it, it's quite simple for them to move players around. And it's the same for coaches as well. Um because they are coached in the same way. But there have been several coaches who have moved around, several directors who have moved around, and they've employed the same model everywhere. And it's become a bit of a trend that Premier League clubs have liked the way they've gone about business because they've ha- because they've been so successful. Obviously, Liverpool and Jurgen Klopp, they had this very German way of playing, which is high-pressing, high-aggressiveness, you know, playing a lot of verticality and always moving the ball, ball forward. And all the Red Bull clubs play in the same way because of Ralph Rannick and he wanted all the clubs to play in that way. 
So there's a very, very there's a very similar line of thinking when it comes to football tactics and ideology, and which is why that Liverpool have been so focused on Red Bull players. You know, Keita was there. Keita was the first. Uh, Mane was the first one to join. Keita joined him afterwards. Uh, Mina Mina joined in 2019, and even before that, Joel Matip was from Schalke, and he worked under Ralph Rangnick, so he knows the way of of going about things. And I wouldn't be surprised if that relationship grows even stronger. You know, even Jurgen Klopp's been a fan of what they do. And publicly, when Salzburg played Liverpool two years ago, he was publicly very um, appreciative of how they're going about their business. So um, because clubs have been successful with that style of football, more clubs are willing to take a risk on it. Um, Southampton and Ralph Hasenhutl, they've employed the same model across all age groups um, at their club. So... You know, it's clear to see that they're going down the Red Bull way or, you know, the Hasenhutl way, which is inspired by Red Bull. Um, so, yeah, because of this similar line of thought, it's been very successful for them. And they have a model of wanting to look for players around the world so that they can come in for a low cost development. As you said, that because they have that opportunity to develop them at Salzburg and Leipzig, whereas if, wherein if one club doesn't work out, they can always move them to the other. And if they're too good for one league, they can move them to the next level. So, because they have this margin for error and this place to develop and the right people to de- develop them, it's a very successful model for them. And you mentioned the coaching there. And, you know, if you look through some of the coaches that there's been at Salzburg, like Roger Schmidt, he's doing a remarkable job right now with PSV Eindhoven. Eddie Hooter, he's doing a great job with Frankfurt. Uh, Marco Rose, who, who's I love, he's doing a brilliant job with, with Gladbach. And now Jesse Marsh, who previously had managed uh, the New York Red Bulls. With with Leipzig, they've got uh, Julian Nagelsmann, who may be the most highly sought-after young manager in the world. Before him, Ralph Ranić, who you've mentioned, who's a, a legend in, in, in the German game and in the European game in general. And Ralph Hasenhutl, who I think has become one of the darlings of the Premier League um, because of how he's turned Southampton around, because of the style of play. Each of those managers do play a similar high-tempo style of football. And, and you've obviously, you've mentioned Ranić you, 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 and the similarities to, to Klopp and how Klopp operates. But these managers, they're becoming almost as sought after for coming through the Leipzig system as the players that come through the Leipzig system. Hmm. Would it be fair to say that if Julian Nagelsmann was available in the summer, there would be quite a few clubs that would happily get rid of their current manager to bring him in. There's always going to be interest in Julian Nagelsmann because of you know who he is and what he's achieved at such a young age. He's only 32 years old, going on 33. And you know he's he's done extraordinary work with both Hoffenheim and Leipzig. Um, so definitely, if, if there is an opening available for him, clubs would be happy to take him on. But I'm not entirely sure that he'd want to move because he's always so focused on his own personal development in the, in the first um, regard. You know, he's, he's admitted himself that in the past he's had offers from big clubs, including Real Madrid, who he's rejected to move to RB Leipzig and grow himself and um, work on his own CV. So I think he'd want to complete his own personal development first at Leipzig. And there are, there are still a few flaws to his game, as mm. it should be. Um, you know, we saw in the defeat against Manchester United with the last 5-0, you know, even though they overturned the result in the second leg, in the second um, part of the group stage, and they ended up qualifying, it was still a concerning part in Nagelsmann's um, system. So he'd want to develop first personally, I think, and then he'd move on to a different club. But definitely, if if 
he was open to it. There would be no shortage of clubs around the world who'd want to take him on because he's, in my opinion, the best young manager in the world. And what he's achieved at such a young age, making a Champions League semi-final and challenging for the Bundesliga almost every season, um, it's extraordinary. And there will eventually be a big move for him. Um, as for coaches themselves, as you said, um, there is still a worry that all these all these good coaches will are they are they are as highly touted as the players are, and um, there could be a problem in the future where Leipzig feel that their coaches are leaving them too soon and leaving a, a gaping hole for them because they have to keep redeveloping and reorganizing their structure. So, um, but because as I said that the men the the thing where all coaches around the Red Bull group play in a similar way, I feel that they're giving their future coaches a good platform to work in at the other clubs before they move them on to Leipzig if needed. So, um, you know, th- there is a good system in place to keep them keep them sustained for the future. So one interesting young coach who has been in the Red Bull orbit but but since moved on is René Marisch, who is the uh, assistant manager at Borussia Mönchengladbach to Marco Rose. He... He became really well known for talking about coaching principles and philosophies on social media. And he is now the assistant manager to one of the, I think, best young managers in the world. And he's super highly rated himself. But it was seen as, you know, he he joined joined Salzburg in the youth system and worked next to Rose and then moved up with him to be to the first team and then I went onwards. But like his his first big exposure was social media. It's not every club that is looking for someone who's his age. He was 24 at the time when they hired him, who's yeah. most well known. Now, I know he'd worked at Handenburg, but he was only there for a year. He was most well known for the work he'd been doing on social media. That's where he became, you know, prevalent. Yep. Do you think this is something we'll see more clubs do where they do reach out to young coaches who are, you know, writing tactical pieces, talking on social media? Do you think that's something we'll see become more commonplace? Or is there something of a stigma against against those people uh, in, in mainstream football? I think it's becoming more and more popular as we go on because, you know, there are lots of talented people out there working on tactical pieces and data and statistical things. Um, so there's no shortage of people who are interested in them. And obviously, Randy Marriage is the best example. You know, lots of people look up to him um, because of what he's done and how he's achieved it. Um, he worked on his blog. Um, he worked on social media, as you said. And he worked with uh, coach. Coaches often contacted him, asked him to do tactical pieces on a freelance basis. And so the clubs and eventually got two very good jobs at Salzburg and at, at Borussia Mönchengladbach. And he's having a great experience now with Gladbach playing in the Champions League and playing and challenging for the Bundesliga. Well, last season, they were challenging for the Bundesliga. Um, but yeah, I, I think it'll become more of a commonplace for clubs. I think they already are doing it. I've seen lots of clubs um, lately uh, around the UK, around Europe, uh, wanting to get the best talent in. And many of these people who get these jobs at clubs are just people working from home, working with um, data tools like Opta and Scout, And they're, they're just making very standard blogs about what they do and how they do it. 
And it may look like simple work, but it's long and lengthy. And if people are willing to put the effort into it, they will eventually get their reward. Um, I'm not sure if you know Ashwin Raman, who's who's been working with Motherwell in the Scottish Premier League, and he's just yes. 17. He's just a 17 year old from India. Um, so, and his work is excellent, by the way. I mean, and mm. I'm sure you've read it, and his work is, is it's very detailed, very thorough, and explains stuff in a wonderful way. So, if if people if clubs are willing to give a, a big chance at a club like Motherwell to a person like Ashwin, who's who's still a teenager. Um, Lots of clubs will take inspiration from that, and you know, it's very beneficial to the club as well because it gives you a diverse range of people to work with, different ideas, new ideas, new experiences. It's also very cost-effective because these people are still, in a way, inexperienced, so they'll come in much cheaper than full, full-on scouts who've who had years and years of experience. So it works in multiple ways for clubs, and they see it as very beneficial way. So I think more people will do it in the future because of how successful it's been. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing groups like Market Insights, Total Football Analysis, you know, come to come together via social media. These guys wouldn't know each other otherwise. And then they work their way into the football sphere, create their companies and start to advise clubs. Another who's who really made his name on social media and has gone on to do very well is Stevie Grieve, who's yep. the um, head of performance and data analysis at Dundee United. So, like, there is a real path for people. Uh, Jed Davies is another one who became really well-known on social media. I was the assistant manager of the Ottawa Fury. I'm not sure what Jed's doing now, but Jed's another one that became really well-known through social media. So I think the point of that is, if you're a young, aspiring coach trying to break into the game or a young, aspiring scout don't worry about approaching clubs. Yeah. Write your stuff down. For sure. Put yeah. together your profiles. Approach websites. Start your own website if you need to. Because if you're good enough, the clubs will find you. I think that's the message here. Yeah, definitely. Do you know? Um, and I confused Motherwell. I confused Dundee United for Motherwell earlier. But yeah, Dundee do an excellent job of finding these these people on social media. And even if they just have a standard blog, just put their work out there. It doesn't have to be flashy. It doesn't have to be, you know, very, very, you know, prolific in a way. It just has to be effective. And if it mm. if it if it's fit for purpose, people will find you eventually for sure. Yeah, and the thing thing to remember is don't try and sound too smart. Yeah. Don't make things too complicated. Make things as simple as possible, and that will come across an awful lot better than something that looks like you pulled a thesaurus out and changed every word and you wrote the Joey Tribbiani letter to the adoption people. Um, back to Red Bull for a second. We see Sadio Mane is one of the best players in the Premier League. He came through Salzburg, moved to Southampton, on to Liverpool. Naby Keita, Salzburg, Leipzig, Liverpool. There's going to be a massive run on Salzburg and ex-Salzburg players over the next couple of years. Kanate, Upamecano, and we've seen Minamino come to the Premier League as well, obviously. Um, Erling Haaland, obviously, was at Salzburg, moved to Dortmund. What is it about their approach to scouting that separates them, though? How do they continually hit on young players over and over again? Um they look for different ways to find these players and find the best ones. And 
Um, the Red Bull clubs, when Ralf Ranjik joined in, he had this philosophy of the three Cs, or in German it's the three Ks, which is capital, concept, and com- competence. Um, and the competence part strikes the most because they want players to, as the name says, be competent, wherein they are disciplined, disciplined off the pitch. They they never late to training and all that stuff. They they try to keep their feet on the ground and focus on their football. And on the football side of things, they try to be effective within the model they employ, the Red Bull model, which is, as I said before, um, the high pressing model and the, the intensity and the speed. And they try to ensure that players can fit that uh, model perfectly. Um, and because all these coaches they employ are so good and so refined and so well known to Ralph Rangnick, these are all people of, who were associates of Ralph Rangnick from for a long time and they've worked with him for, for years and developed and worked with his models for years. And because of that, they can hit hit the nail on the head each time because all these players work in that way, and they progress through the system, making them so good and so refined in each of these in in in, in the style. Um, but yeah, they they try to form good links with players and their families on and off the pitch. You know, when these players are youngsters, before they can move clubs, they try to form good links with their families and you know give them uh, all that they need to succeed. Diopa McConnell is a good example because. Um, when he was still a teenager, he was supposed to join Manchester United, um, but he ended up rejecting them because he wasn't getting the right benefits when it came to visiting his family and all that. But um, Salzburg were more than happy to accept his needs and his requirements, and they developed them over the years. And even when Upamecano was in a patchier run of form with Salzburg and Leipzig, they were willing to take a chance on him and keep him at the club and not let him go. And now he's one of the best or most in-demand defenders in the world. So, you know, there's a lot of trust that goes into their model. There's a lot of refining, a lot of, you know, trial and error and doing it over and doing it over until they get it right. Um, So, yeah, it's a combination of factors. One of the biggest factors is top-level coaching, which is what they've had for years and years. And another factor would be the player's competence, you know, how hungry the player is to succeed and how much desire he has to reach the next level. And um, that's that's all combined to given the success they've had in recent years, you know, such a young team challenging for league titles and challenging for the Champions League last season, it's not always going to happen. It's not very normal in football. You need a bit of experience. Uh, but these guys, because they know what they're doing and they're so refined in it, they are able to succeed at a high level. So Ralph Ranjek is has obviously been massively important over the last five six years in terms of what he accomplished how he shaped the vision for the red bull red bull group he has left the club he has left the organization now how big of a blow is that and how did they go about replacing him i don't think it was that big a blow to them necessarily i think that it it was the best time for him to leave um he admitted that he achieved all he could with the club or with all the clubs. And um, it, was, it was a good time for him to leave because he had nothing more to achieve. And um, he, it's perfectly true when he says that because there were times in the past when he was expected to leave the, the group, you know, most popularly in 2016 when England were in for him. And even later on when clubs like United and Chelsea were linked to him. But if he had left earlier, the club, all clubs were still, you know, in a bit of a developmental phase where they needed a little bit more and they needed him to stay. And he stayed and he made them what they are today. Um, so it was, it was a perfect time for him to leave because Leipzig were now established in Europe. You know, reaching the Champions League semi-final was the biggest achievement for them. While Salzburg were doing very well in their model and in 
in their country where they're winning league titles every year and winning trophies every year. Um, so it, it was a perfectly good time for him to leave and didn't really have much struggle replacing him because in his final year at the Red Bull Club, which was the 2019-2020 season, um, they employed people within the, within each of the four clubs to take over when Randnick does eventually leave. You know, Marcus Kroosh is the sporting director at Leipzig. Um, Christoph Freund has been the sporting director at Salzburg for several years. And they're both experienced in what they do when they follow a similar line of thought when it comes to football and mark and um, scouting. Um, so Ranik wasn't really missed when he left um, because of the plans he left in place and because they were so established and they were so, so successful over the last few years where the football model was well-renowned throughout all clubs and they knew what they were doing. It wasn't that much of a blow because of the plans he left in place. So the timing was perfectly right um, and the model was there to take them to the next level and take them beyond um, or take them away from take them away from missing him. So, yeah, it was a good time for him to leave. Yeah, another another appointment they made, uh, Kevin Telwell, who had been yeah. the director of football at or the sporting directors was at, at Wolves. Yeah, he moved to um, to New York uh, Red Bulls. Now, he's he's very highly thought of. He's a very, very intelligent man, former coach. Um, he's he wrote the the book Coaching the European Three Five Two, which is a very very good book. If anyone ever wants to pick that up, he'd been the academy manager at Wolves and sort of worked his way up for the club, and now he heads off to um to the or he's gone to the Red Bulls about a year now at this point. He's very very highly thought. Of. So yeah, I, I guess you are right. They they did sort of put the plans in place where rather than have one figure as a, an overall godfather, they now have you know. They have four main figures who can each oversee the single project. Yeah, and they had Oliver Mitzlaff as well, who was um, the sporting director at Leipzig, and he moved to take over. He effectively replaced Ralph Rennick when he left, so he's now the man overseeing it. But they have clear, they have people overlooking each of the clubs specifically, while they all report to Oliver Mitzlaff, who is the head of global football. So, yeah, there was a good plan in place for when Ralph Rennick eventually left. So. We'll park that there. That's Wings of Change, how the world's biggest energy drink manufacturer made American football. It's available from Amazon, from any good bookstore. Uh, well worth the read, well worth picking up. So do pick that one up. I wanted to touch quickly before I let you go on another project you were involved in this year. So obviously you are the co-founder and editor of Football Chronicle, which is more kind of long-form writing, um, high-level long-form writing, I should say, on the game. You guys released your first book this year as a collective, the Iberia Chronicles. So just yeah. tell me a little bit about that. Right. So um, Iberia Chronicles focuses on Spanish and Portuguese football. Um, it's written in a style that's very similar to what we produced on Football Chronicle, the online website. Um, uh, if you didn't follow Football Chronicle, it was, we, as you said, we, we focus on long form pieces, which was mostly focusing on the history of the game. Um we focused on, you know, historical players, historical clubs, um, times from the past, and they were all long form, you know, which were mainly about a thousand seven hundred words or more. Um, so we tried to incorporate that in our first book, which focused on Spanish and Portuguese football, and we chose that topic because of how much history the two nations had in the game. You know, they were they were playing football for over two hundred years, um, and they both had their periods of success, and they had great players, great coaches. Great, great academies. So we wanted to look. We wanted to focus on those two countries and um, 
yeah, we, we produced a book of 20 chapters written by 20 different writers, myself included. And um, the book was published in September 2020. Yeah. Now, I have that one ordered. I haven't received it yet. So, you know, Brexit is slowing things down. Um, Amazon are having nightmares. But, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting my hands on that one and reading it. It is it, like Wings of Change from our friends at Pitch Publishing, who uh, who really do just put out so much good quality stuff. So check out Pitch Publishing, uh, Pitch Publishing on social media as well for any updates on new books that they've got coming. Uh, but Karan, this has been this has been brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on, for taking the time out of your day. Um, your social media is at Karan underscore Tejwani twenty six, yep. and obviously your work is found uh, these football times, football chronicle. Before I let you go, do you have anything? What's what's next in the chamber? What what is coming next from you? Um, I have a few plans in place, um, but this year isn't like last year when we had. I had so much more time last year to do so much more work. Uh, but I've been much more, I've been much more busier this year, so I'm not sure if I can go ahead with the plan. But it is a book. I'm gonna say I'm not gonna say what topic it is, but if there is anything, I'll definitely reveal it on my social media. Um, but yeah, there there is a plan for a second book, um, which hopefully I can reveal in a couple of weeks. Um, but but yeah, that's that's the basic idea of it. I did see you asking. I think I think I saw you asking questions on social media, looking for people to get in touch with recently. I won't spoil it, but yeah, I think I know what what it is that you're you're going to be working on. Um, it's closely linked to that. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Right. Well, look forward to that. Follow Karan on Twitter. Uh, follow Football Chronicles. Check out the books, especially this. Wings of Change, really, really good. And uh, thank you so much, Karan. I'll speak to you again sometime. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Right then, that was Karan Tejwani. Check out the book, uh, Wings of Change, How the World's Biggest Energy Drinks Manufacturer Made American Football. It is, it's a really good read, uh, some fascinating insights, something he clearly put a lot of work into. And check out, like I said, his work on Football Chronicle. Um, we want to do the gossip now to wrap up. So, Tottenham Hotspur are lining up a summer move for Southampton and England forward Danny Ings this year. Isn't a move that makes any sense for anybody involved? I mean, it would give Spurs a, a quality backup striker, but he, he plays very differently to Harry Kane. He doesn't really suit how Spurs play. Um, it doesn't make sense for Ings to go there. Ings wants a return to a Champions League club and is holding off on a new deal. Danny Ings has never played for a Champions League club. So how he wants a return to one, I don't know. Liverpool were a mid-table team when he was there um, Inter Milan and Belgium striker Romelu Lukaku has no interest in joining Manchester City not surprising um, he is playing out of his skin for Inter Milan he has been remarkably good for them he is without question one of the best strikers in the world and unfortunately for Man United they're the club that didn't see it Obviously, Chelsea gave up on him, but he was a, he was a young striker. But Everton, he was great. He was really good on his loan at at West Brom. He went to United and he scored a, a, a decent amount of goals, but he was clearly wasn't all that interested. There was clearly no motivation for him. He looked three stone heavier than he does now. He wasn't bullying defenders the way he is now. He has been sensational 
for Inter since he went there, and, and I, I can't see why he would want to leave or that they would let him leave. Liverpool and Tottenham are looking into a possible deal for Inter's Italian midfielder, Nicolo Barella. Now, I love him. I think he's a fantastic player, and if Liverpool were looking to bring him in to replace Ginny Wijnaldum, I would be all in favour of it, but you do always have that little niggle in the back of your head about Italians coming to the Premier League because traditionally they haven't done well. Zola was great. De Canio was very good. Benito Carboni was good. Fabrizio Ravanelli had a good season with Burra. Gianluca Festa did well there. Di Matteo did well at Chelsea. But aside from that, Minakwalani was a disaster. Newcastle had a couple of Italian fullbacks. Neither of them worked out. There's been, you know, a couple of Italian strikers have come over and not done well. Now, he might have the mentality to do it because he is a lunatic. At at 19, when he broke through a Cagliari, he was barking in people's faces, didn't care. He'll go and he'll start fights with everybody. He just doesn't care. Uh, yeah, Andrea De Senna at Liverpool, as Guy says, world-class for a week, trash the rest of the time. Um, you, you really don't want to gamble on Italians, but he might be, he might be different because his mentality's really strong. Like You always looked at De Rossi and thought, he's made for the Premier League. Barella might be similar. Now, he's smaller, but, I mean, Mascherano was small and everybody was terrified of him. Uh, Liverpool and Barcelona have not given up hope of signing Bayern Munich and Austria defender David Alaba, despite Real Madrid being close to a deal. So, as I said the other day, Marca had reported that the deal was done. It's not done, um, and others are still in the mix for him. AC Milan have agreed a deal to sign Fecchio Tamore on an initial loan with a view to a permanent deal worth up to 30 million euro. See, see, I don't know what Chelsea are doing. I really don't know what Chelsea are doing. He could have been part of that young team that they built. Even if he was just the third centre-back behind the new centre-back and Zuma with the view of him replacing Zuma, I don't understand what what the logic is in, in selling him like this. Loan him, fine. If you're not going to play him, loan him. But the decision to sell him is just bizarre. Manchester United are lining up a £11 million bid for Lens and Argentina defender Facunda Medina, who's 21. Um, he's a left-back. And they bought a left-back in the summer, and they've got Luke Shaw. And Brandon Williams can play left-back. I don't know why they would want to buy another left-back. That's very strange to me. Maybe Tellers hasn't settled at all, and they're going to look to move him on. Um, Medina's very good. He's very, very talented. But that that's a very strange one. Uh, nice are no longer interested in signing United's 28-year-old England midfielder, Jesse Lingard. Maybe they saw him dance. Maybe they followed him on TikTok or something and they saw him dance and thought, no, he's not for us. Uh, Tottenham, a Tottenham midfielder, Deli Alley, um, hopes of a move to um, PSG rest on what demands Spurs place on it. So whether they're looking for a big loan fee, whether they're looking for 
PSG to cover all the wages. It's generally one or the other. You get a loan fee, you probably cover some of the wages, or the the, the club loaning the player just cover all the wages. Spurs probably want to get some money in, um, you know, because Ali's value has crashed. I mean, that's a guy that was a hundred million pound player three years ago, and now you, I think you might get twenty five, thirty for him. Someone will get a someone will get a bargain with Dali Ali. Someone will buy him, build a team around him, and he'll get back to being excellent. Now, whether you can win major honors with that, I don't know. But he is—he's a tremendous player, and he's still only twenty-four. Um, talks between England under twenty-one midfielder Jamal Musala and Bayern Munich over a new contract have stalled, with Liverpool, Manchester United, and Man City monitoring the situation. He is absolutely sensational. An absolutely sensational talent. He was at Chelsea for eight years. He was born in Germany, moved to England uh, with his family, and grew up in England, was at the Chelsea Academy for eight years, left for Bayern last summer, and has already broken into the... Sorry, two summers ago, 2019, and has already broken into the first team at the age of 17, and he's made 19 appearances for them so far, scoring three goals. He is just a ridiculously ridiculously talented player. Now, contract-wise, he's contracted until 2022. So Bayern do have time. There's no pressure on them as yet. But if it gets into next season with no contract, you just wonder. Bayern will be desperate to keep him. You'd have to imagine they would be. He's so good. He's so, so talented. Uh, Newcastle United's Emil Kraft's move to Istanbul, Besiktas has stalled after he started against Arsenal. I don't know why they would sell him. They've never really given him a proper run in the team, and he is a very right-back from a defensive point of view. Uh, Bayer Leverkusen are in talks with Chelsea over a deal to sign Damari Gray. That's a good move for him. Whether he'd start there or not, I don't know. But, you know, he needs a change of scenery. His development has not been what it had been hoped to be. Um, Arsenal have been told that Emi Buendia will not be leaving Norwich during this window. That's expected, I think. I think that's fair. Man City have a £27.5 million buyback on Douglas Louise, which expires this summer, but Pep is not expected to pursue the, 27, the 22-year-old. Now, that to me is silly because... Even if you just buy him to sell him again, you'll make profit on it. So buy him and sell him at forty million. Maybe for Villa, the option, the, the the move is there. Go and offer City five million to take to take out the buyback clause. Montpellier have rejected a move from West Ham for French striker Gaetan Laborde. Um, like I said, West Ham are making moves, trying to get, uh, trying to get a striker in. It's what they're they're desperate for. DeAndre Yedlin says he's in the dark over his future as the club have not instigated contract talks, nor should they. They should look to move him the first possible uh, opportunity. He's just not very good. He's just not very good at all. Um, Atletico Madrid want Diego Simeone to sign a new deal, keep him at the cl- keeping him at the club until 2024. Uh, you'd absolutely want to keep him. I think he's the best manager in the world. He's certainly top three. Um, why would they allow him to leave if they can keep him? And finally, Real Madrid's Norway midfielder, Martin Odegaard, has asked to leave the club. I love him. He is very, very high on the list of players 
I want Liverpool to sign. Very, very high. If Liverpool are going to change to a 4-4-2, 4-2-3-1, you know, 4-4-2 box midfield, he is perfect for that. The role that they use Shakiri in now, he would be a big upgrade in that role. I would love Odegaard at Liverpool. Um, I I notice a, a a story on the BBC before I go. Uh, the modern great with an uncertain future. It's about Sergio Ramos. The modern great. I mean, I suppose you could argue, you know, he's had a great career. But all them red cards, all those defensive errors, uh, not for me, not for me. One of the most overrated players of all time is Sergio. Great captain, great going forward, which isn't, you know, the primary trait you want in a defender. Good recovery defender, but he has to be because he's always out of position. Uh, That is it. That is the show for today. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you to Guy Drinkle. Thank you to Karen Tejwani for his time. And thank you to Fox Hunt for the title music. We will see you tomorrow. Take care and goodbye. Podcast Network.